It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Hi, my name, as you just heard, is Matt Fitzgerald, and I'm so excited to be the host of this new podcast from the Christian Century, Preachers on Preaching. Each episode, I'm going to interview a different preacher. I'm doing this for all sorts of different reasons, but one of the primary motivators for me is actually self-interest. I'm a preacher. I have been one for 16 years. I think during all of those years, the longest break I've taken from the pulpit is maybe two, three weeks in a row. Aside from that, almost every week, week in, week out, I climb into the pulpit and I try to preach the Word of God. And just about a year ago, I stopped and I asked myself, what are you doing? What's happening then? What's happening in the pulpit? What's happening when God shows up on a Sunday morning and things feel absolutely electric? And I start to believe that maybe Carl Barton, the Apostle Paul are both right and God, God's self is right there in the interchange between the word preached and the congregation hearing it and responding to it. And a dialogue gets going when what looks like is happening is a monologue and it starts to feel almost miraculous. What's happening there then? But also what's happening on those Sundays when I work really hard or the week beforehand and polish my words and then I step up and things seem to fall flat. And what's happening when I don't have time to work hard, when I'm distracted by other aspects of my own life or the work of the church and I can't get things ready and then I step into the pulpit and I feel like I'm not doing my job right or maybe God shows up anyhow and things take flight when I least expect it. What makes a sermon work? What makes a sermon flop? Who are the people who want to be doing this for a living or out of simply a sense of call? What has gone right in their lives to lead folks to step into the pulpit? What's gone wrong in their lives to cause them to make such a wild choice? These are the kind of things I've been wondering about, and I thought... In addition to the reading I've been doing and the prayers I've been praying and the way I myself have been thinking about these things, that it would be absolutely fascinating to search out and reach out to a diverse group of interesting preachers and find out how they've answered these questions for themselves. So each episode, we'll hear from a different preacher. If you know of an interesting preacher who you think would make a good guest for the show, please let me know. You can reach me via email at preachers at christiancentury.org. That's the email address, preachers at christiancentury.org. You can also find that contact information via the Christian Century's website, christiancentury.org. So let me know. I don't want to simply always be talking to mainline preachers whom I'm inclined to agree with. I want to hear from as many different people as we possibly can. So please do send me suggestions, names of folks, clips to sermons. We'll make sure to take a good look at them, and your efforts and your help will help make this podcast uh, even more fascinating than it may already be. And I do think it's off to a fascinating start. Today, for our very first episode, we're going to hear a conversation that I had with Shannon Kirshner. Shannon is the senior pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in the city of Chicago, where I also serve. If you're a Chicagoan, you know that Fourth Presbyterian is an icon church here in our city. It is 
I think of it as sort of the Protestant cathedral for the city of Chicago, right downtown on the Miracle Mile. It attracts all sorts of different people, has a remarkable legacy of social justice work in the city. It's a great place. Shannon has been at Fourth Presbyterian for a little over a year. When I spoke with her, this is a couple of weeks ago at this point, it was right about close to her one-year anniversary as the senior minister of Fourth Presbyterian. Prior to heading to Fourth, Shannon served as the head of staff at the Black Mountain Presbyterian Church in Texas. She's a native Texan, and one of the things our conversation touches upon is the difficulty of transitioning from Texas to Illinois from an environment that still retains at least some of the vestiges of Christendom into what often can feel like a very post-Christian environment here in Chicago. We talk about that. We talk about the challenges of being in the middle of a transition in the life of a church as the new pastor. We talk about what it feels like to speak as a post-liberal to a liberal Protestant congregation. The conversation goes in all sorts of different places, including exploring the topic of whether Protestants might have it wrong and marriage might be sacramental. In particular, perhaps gay marriage is sacramental or it's teaching us that all marriage could be. My conversation with Shannon starts in her response to a question that I've just asked. And that question just touched upon her comfort level in the pulpit. So now, without any further ado, here's Shannon Kirshner. The moment of preaching itself um, is very comfortable for me. So it really does feel like home. Is that, know, has that always been the case? It's intimidating. Yes. Did you grow up going to church, witnessing a lot of preaching? I did. I'm the preacher's kid. Ah, okay. So my dad is a retired Presbyterian minister. Okay. And um, so, yes, church was a very regular part of my life, but did in you, a good way. Did you pay, as a child, did you pay careful attention to his preaching or was it? Not until, I'm going to say, I'm trying to figure out when I started really actually listening to him. I think it was probably late middle school, early high school. Okay. When I started paying attention. When you dialed in. Yeah, when I dialed in. And, um, you know, my father and I share very similar theological uh, perspectives but our sermon styles are radically different. So I would never be able to preach one of his sermons and be authentic to who I am as preacher and same. He wouldn't be able to preach mine, but we tend to end up in the same place. In the same place theologically? Theologically, yeah. how, how are your styles different? Um, well, so he tends to be a little bit more um, philosophical. Okay. I don't know if that makes any sense. And then uh, tends to then work his way to the text. Mm -hmm. So he starts, um, maybe with a larger theological question or perhaps with something going on in the world or something that he's read. And then he works his way into the text. He was always a lectionary preacher. Um, I am as well, but uh, I start with the text and then work my way out from there. Interesting. I think that there's a distinction there between the sort of height of classic liberal Protestant yes. preaching and the sort of post-liberal. Yes chastened, right. um, changed way. There's, yeah, there's this generational shift. Yeah. So you were, you were ordained about 15 years ago. Is yeah, that right? 16 years this August. Okay. So a couple of questions about that congregations that grew accustomed to 
liberal preaching. The Martin Copenhaver told me this joke one time that um, a rabbi friend of his said to him, every liberal Protestant sermon that he'd ever heard went like this. It went, um, the New York Times says, a cartoon in the New Yorker says, a poem that I recently read says, but perhaps Jesus said it best. Um, and so what I've found over the years is preaching to congregations that are accustomed to that, we're going to discern revelation from the broader culture and then look for where, it, where Jesus can be fit to correspond to it, right? Or where scripture can, um, it's jarring to them to begin with what you're describing, to be so scripturally rooted. And the sermons of yours that I read and listened to, you definitely hew very closely to the to the the pericopier, the lectionary assignment. Mm -hmm. So have you found that? Is that accurate, an accurate assessment, like resistance from your congregations? Or um, maybe this is just a UCC phenomenon. What do you think? Um, so I did not find that, uh, that that kind of uh, not really dichotomy, but different style was as pronounced in when my church is in the South. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, my preaching voice has always felt very natural when I was in Texas. Um, it felt very natural when I was in Black Mountain, North Carolina. Part of that was because I had 50 retired clergy as a part of that congregation oh and seminary professors. So it was extremely biblically literate, okay. theologically sophisticated. So you could just make allusions to stories and they're right with you. You could jump right in. You, know, you could, yeah. Um, I found here in Chicago that there is that shift for folks. And, um, you know, I, Fourth Presbyterian Church has such a rich history of really excellent preaching. And John Buchanan was there for 25 or so years. Right. And, uh, and so my preaching voice is distinctively different from his, even though I would say we end up at the same theological place. Yeah. But um, it has been jarring to some of my folks to um, to experience my preaching that does start very closely with the text and works its way out, and does it. I bring in other sources, but not explicitly, typically. Yeah. So that becomes a part of the footnotes. You know that that informs what happens in the preaching moment, but it's not. I'm not usually as explicit about it. So that has been, I think, a hard shift for some of my folks. I, well, I know it has been, undoubtedly. Yeah. It's amazing when when you start at a new church, in my experience at least, there is those sorts of major and significant adjustments to grow accustomed to that are marked by a, change, a, a difference in training, difference in theological right. perspective. In this instance, as we were discussing, just big generational differences. Right. No preacher or very few preachers are going to be trained the way that your predecessor was trained and step into that position right. today. But then there's also just these like changes of the sound of your voice, yes. the well, way that I you walk. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm a first soprano. <laughs> yes, yes. So does it take, in, as you're kind of preaching your way into your new setting, um, what is that like to, to preach your way into a relationship with a congregation? Did you find... Does that seem like an accurate sort of characterization of what's going on? I think so. I, you know, I, I wish that I had been more aware of how different my voice would be in all kinds of ways. Um, I might have come in differently, although I don't know even know what I mean when I say that. Yeah. I just didn't even, it never occurred to me 
that I had such a drastic style difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also animated in the pulpit as I am in everyday life. Okay. And um, so that's also different um, for some of my people. Um, you know, I've never entered a congregation the size of Fourth before. Yeah. I'm yeah. the only pastor on staff who's never served in a large congregation. Oh, that's a huge adjustment. <laughs> yeah. And so um, how you get to know a congregation of 5,500 people um, is drastically different than how I got to know a congregation of 700. And with, you know, previous congregations, I've gotten to know them through memorial services and through hospital visits and a whole variety of um, intimate ways, yeah. personal moments. And in my position at Fourth, I still have some of those opportunities, but not nearly like I've had before. And I could get overtaken by administration if I let it. Absolutely. So, um, so it's been uh, harder for me to figure out how to establish trust by if people only experience me as preacher in the pulpit. Yeah. In the pulpit, are you able to do the kind of pastoral work that? Forges those bonds? I'm trying to figure out how. Yeah. So I'm a year in now. Okay. Um, I definitely have been trying to meet with as many people one-on-one as possible while also helping to, you know, get to know my staff and the leadership and all of those things that one needs to do, listen to the stories. We have a lot of small group meetings for me to meet with people and kind of tell my story of how I ended up here. Um and so it's just going to take a lot longer than it's ever taken before. Yeah. Do you think um, that the pulpit two, can, in, in my experience in larger church settings, the that attempt to, which we have to do, that attempt to build relationship via hospital visits and pastoral care can feel scattershot for years. Yeah. Like in a smaller church, you're, you're year connecting. Year exactly. Right. And, and every time you make a visit, you're also connecting to that person's circles in some right. way and to their family. Yep. Whereas in a congregation of thousands of people, it, those visits can feel very one-off in yeah. terms of trying to... So I think that the pulpit is the way to do it, yeah. right? Um, so, and we have to rely on grace, I guess. <laughs> Right, and patience. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, the fact is that even if I, as someone told me, even if I had just shown up and not said anything, I'm a different enough presence for fourth as their senior pastor that it's going to take people a while to adjust. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone, um, but but it's certainly going to take some folks a while. You know, I'm a 42-year-old woman from the South, yeah. from Texas. Um, and so... It, with a very different preaching voice and leadership style and and um, presentation and all of that. So it's uh, the congregation and I are, are learning patience and grace with each other. There's a way in which I found when I was in, in those times of transition myself, like, for instance, the, the last church I served before coming here, the man that I followed there had, like, the world's most beautiful voice. Mm-hmm. I just these golden, mellifluous, deep <laughs> tones. And um, about a year in, one of the folks in the congregation pulled me aside and said, you know, I, I, things are going well. I just can't stand the sound of your voice. Oh, yikes. And I know, and, I, and it felt, you know. It it's hard gorgeous. not to be wounded by that stuff. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, I know that my successor at the church I had served previously was being compared to me all over the place yeah. and was suffering his own version of that experience. Right. Does the, 
So I've found the universality of it, of those trans, of that transitional pain can be, it's happening at every church that's Absolutely. going through change. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, especially when they're long-term healthy ministries. Yeah. So I know following Dr. Elam Davies at Fourth, you know, John came in and and it was a kind of a rough couple years in the beginning for him. And so I, this is nothing new. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also been wonderful. Uh, don't get me wrong, but um, I just think I'm did not have a full appreciation of the difference. Um, that my congregation would experience by calling me to be their senior pastor. Yeah, yeah. Do you let's back up a little bit and talk yeah. about the sort of growth of your own style as a preacher? Um, so we discussed previously. Would you characterize yourself as a post-liberal? Does that yeah, description fit for you? It yeah. does, and and you know, I think I don't remember exactly the phrase he uses, but Paul Ricoeur's sort of naivete that you come to scripture with in a in a post-liberal fashion so we know that even if things are not literally true we know they're true you know and I but and yet I would also say uh, you know Calvin talked about being so immersed in scripture that it becomes the way you see the world Mm -hmm. like the spectacles through which you look so I I think I'm Calvinist in that way in my deep uh, respect for the text while still having kind of that feminist hermeneutic of suspicion but also mixed in with a hermeneutic of trust so it's this whole mixture but um but a recovery sort of of our biblical story and seeing what still holds true um, and still holds great authority in our lives uh, while recognizing that some stuff is so contextual that it's just going to be different um, so yeah, I would say post-liberal, post-modern, uh, in many, many ways, for but sure. But at the same try- time, also trying to get back to... Deeply grounded. Right, and yeah, almost in a pre-modern sense of, of trust and reliance on the story. Right. isn't which, that a weird mix? It is. I mean, it calls for a sort of double, double consciousness. It does. Um, as a preacher, do you find that, do you just, do you try to make that plain occasionally? The, mm-hmm. the it's a... It's a sophisticated stance to try and take. What I've found over the years is it can come across to a congregation like when I was in New England, the congregation I served had a hard time distinguishing between that approach and a biblical literalism. Um, and that might have been my fault too. I mean, I, so so I had to back up. I remember I mean, now this. Now you're going to meddling. Let's <laughs> be <laughs> saying this out. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think um, that. Uh, that people can hear you just like you're only just retelling the story yeah in a yeah. sermon when it's it's not that right and there's a lot of more nuance and you know with a phrase you can bring it right into what's happening today just mm-hmm. with a phrase but it it takes uh, probably more explication than i've done in terms of explicating and explaining the apparatus right. behind it right which is boring right yeah i don't i mean i haven't that's why i say if i could redo my entry i might have been more particular about speaking about what you know how i come at preaching i don't know if that would have been useful for people or not i've i've tried to do that in small group settings and they find it very useful um i did talk about last summer what i mean when i say jesus Mm. because that because i i do say it with a southern accent right so that makes some of my folks i think who've grown up in more um uh i this is uh, 
caricature, but more rigid traditions, um, more conservative, probably theologically. I tend to accidentally use buzzwords. Oh, um, so you don't know their buzzwords, it. but to I them never they are. Think that, yeah. Yeah. Who people who've been dechurched or who are sort of church refugees who found a safe space back at forth. Um, it's interesting, though. There is, in I think, in the world of, of mainline liberal Protestantism, we do wind up with folks who have found a safe home right. in a tradition that historically has de-emphasized Jesus. Right. And so for post-liberal preachers... Who have who, a high Christology. Who have a high Christology. Or a low Christology, as it is, yeah. But who have spent their lives in this tradition right. and have run up against its shortcomings... Um, to then have taken a turn toward a more orthodox, traditional, at least format, if not content, right? Um, that can feel too fundamentalist. Yeah, and it can right. feel like a like a return to what some people have arrived in our churches trying to flee. I had a guy come into yeah. my office one time years ago, and he said to me, "This wasn't here, but he said to me, you never tell us that the stories aren't true.'" didn't happen. That's what he said. You never tell us the stories didn't happen. And he was there because my predecessor had done just that huh. and had deconstructed Christianity right. for him. And he needed he needed that right. in order to connect to God. And I remember feeling at first very defensive, but, but then sort of chastened by that conversation. Yeah. You preached a sermon on that I read on biblical family values oh, yeah, last and the, Sunday. yeah and the way in which the bible's understanding of what a family is right um can be used to have an appreciative understanding and even celebration um for people in non-traditional families yes. today and the example that you were using was caitlin jenner right um so to me, that's like a wonderful illustration of how one can be very scriptural in ways that are liberating, surprising, right? Without simply saying, we need to embrace this cultural shift in this moment around trans inclusivity because it's the liberal thing to do. Yeah, no, I think, right, exactly. I, you know, for, so for what I, what I see as part of my job is to help us kind of recover our faith language so that we can give words to why we live the way we live. Yeah. So my congregation, for example, is extremely involved in social justice work. And so, but, but we're more than a social service agency, right? So, um, so how can I help my folk be able to speak of their faith with respect for other traditions, with um, grace, and also with an understanding of, of what they believe. We we Presbyterians have done a good job of saying what we don't believe. Our challenge, I think, right now in this time is saying what we do believe and why that matters and how that affects us. Yeah. Um, and so I really think that probably part of my call here at Forth involves something around that. I'm still figuring it out, but um, you know, that, that reclaiming language of testimony, um, you know, divorcing it from conversion experience and all these other things, baggage that it has, um, to really talking about how God is at work in your lives and how you are partnering with God in the world. I would imagine shifting from a church that 
because perhaps, and I've never preached in the South or been in the South. I mean, I've been in the South, but I've never ministered there. But I would imagine that at some level, my my sense is this: the reality of living in a post-Christian environment is more apparent serving a church in Chicago than it might be serving a church in South Carolina. North Carolina. North Carolina. Um, and then certainly serving a church that was full of seminary professors and yeah. pastors that's yeah. not quite a post-Christian environment there. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like contextually, you're going to grow and change as a preacher, preaching to a post-Christian congregation in a post-Christian city, yeah. right? Yeah. Have you started to feel that change unfolding for yourself? I don't know. You know, this first year, I've just tried to keep my head above water. <laughs> Let's be honest. You haven't done a lot of second order I reflection on it. I haven't done a whole lot of reflection yeah. on much of anything yeah. other than surviving and and um, and enjoying as much as I can along the way. Yeah. Um, I, you know, ask me that question in a couple more years. Yeah. I mean, I know that my preaching is going to grow and change and. I, I would pray that to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, if not, then we're all in trouble. But I don't, I don't, you know, and people have remarked to me that they experience my preaching now differently than they did when I first got here. They're saying this in a good way. Um, but I, I don't know how much of that is that we're getting to know each other. Yeah. And they're how much of that is so, I mean, I think so much of that is defined by the relationship and the trust. They're hearing you differently. They're hearing me differently. And I, and I now know some of what goes on in some of their lives. Yeah. So that comes into my preaching. You know, I sit at a text and um, I think about, well, how will so-and-so hear this? How would so-and-so, how am I, you know, so I do try to make the sermon conversational, even if I'm imagining the conversation. Um, you know, in previous congregations, I've had taught Wednesday Bible studies in which people really did come together and talk about the text for the upcoming Sunday. So I actually got to hear reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping to establish something like that where I am now. As a part of your preparation. As a part of my prep. Frankly, it keeps you honest because you have to be ready for that by Wednesday. And then it engages more people, not just in the sermon, but then if they can come and have that experience, the whole worship service takes on a whole new meaning because they see the threads that you so carefully lift up in the call to worship and in the confession and the prayers of the people and all in the hymns. You know, we will often what we're preaching on informs all of that. But um, but if you, as a person, if you're not tuned into that, then it may you may not notice it and it may not be as full of an experience as it could be. And for the participants in those kinds of experiences, they also hear that their response to the text has been taken seriously. Absolutely. And we do, a on, on Mondays, we do a group Lectio Divina with the text for the week. Mm. And it's very contemplative and, and it's pretty quiet actually, but we ask those questions, you know, where do you hear God speaking right. to you in this? And what do you hear God calling you to be or to do? And we listen, the preachers here listen for themes that emerge out yeah. of those conversations and it doesn't take any prep. Right. And it's, it, it, those are powerful experiences. Yeah. Um, when you think about your preaching life, is there a sermon that you've preached that you're particularly proud of that stands out in your mind as um, something powerful having happened during yeah. its delivery afterward? Yeah. I, and speaking of post-Christendom, I think it was, I preached a sermon in the summer of mm, 2010 at Montreat, which is a conference center in North Carolina. It's related to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, so denominational 
conference center and they had invited me to come and be one of their summer preachers. I just challenged, I felt called to challenge the narrative of decline that is so taken root. And to talk about, you know, that I, for my entire life, I've heard how the church is going down the tubes, right? How the good old days are no longer here and all of these things. And, and one, I'm not convinced the good old days were good for everybody. I would not have been in the pulpit in the good old days. And, um, and I, I also just think that what's happening is, is more growing pains and more, um, it was out of Paul's letter to the Romans, you know, that about the birth pains. Mm. So that maybe what we're not hearing are death groans, but, um, childbirth mm. and pains. And so how are we help at, how are we to midwife what God's birthing new into the church? And I've rely on my friend, Mary Emma McKibben Dana for help with that imagery. Um, and I, I just think as the Easter people, yeah, we've got to stop with all the death talk or, or, okay. So some things are dying. Okay. Well, how, I mean, so we're about resurrection. Some things have to die. Yeah. So I, for me, that was kind of a, um, generational, and me making a generational claim too for those in my generation who've grown up with this chaos and for whom it's not scary. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So the decline of the mainline isn't scary because you grew. It's been your reality your whole life long, right? right? Yeah. I don't know what it was like to have blue laws, really. Yeah. You know, I was born in '72. So it's funny. Some of those things, like you're probably if you're like me you're probably not invited to pray before the rotary club meeting begins where 30 years ago 40 years ago we would have been there are aspects of being in this post-christian place that are liberating right and, I think and, so. and and can i mean this is not a new idea but can let the church be the church in a way that it wasn't able to when it was trying to be the sort of spiritual gloss on the whole culture right. i think so i think so but you know i just hold up I told, talked to my congregation about this, oh, I don't know when, but you know, when uh, Elam Davies arrived as pastor of Fourth Church, the press met him at the airport for a press conference. Wow. This was big news. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I got here and <laughs> it was nothing until I did the service for Ernie Banks. You know, I did the memorial service for Ernie Banks. And that's when we got a lot of press. That's when the but press came. I want to ask you about that, but I want to stay on this thread for yeah. a moment. The um, Did you uh, feel... When you preached that sermon, you know, there's this whole um, understanding of what goes on when a sermon is being preached. And 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 you know this, but there's this whole um, Bartian understanding, which he gets from Luther and Calvin, of course, that there's something sacramental almost. He doesn't use that language, but there's something sacramental happening that when we preach the gospel, the same thing is happening at Montreat or at Fourth Presbyterian or at Black Mountain that happened in Corinth when Paul mm-hmm. preached, that we are not speaking for ourselves, but rather Bart says we're heralds for the king, right? And that the word of God is actually unfolding in that moment. Um, do you think that's true? I, I do. Yeah. I think I have to think that's true too. Because if I were getting in the pulpit with this understanding that it was up to me, like, you know, that this had better really, really be good and perfect so that someone can be deepened in their faith or whatever. Because if, you're if, so... Because I was so excellent at it, right. So if that was my understanding, I would be paralyzed. Mm-hmm. But um, I do believe that somehow, even through my 
feeble and very fallible words that God's spirit can do something with that yeah. and stir up some new possibility and new reality and new courage and hope in people. Um, not because of who I am or what I say, but just that moment itself when the spirit's at work and the word is living, then I can preach each week. Do you feel that when that happens, it's remarkable, right? Um, when it doesn't happen, I mean, Bart says God is free to show up or not show up on a Sunday morning. Um, when God chooses not to show up, <laughs> what do you think is happening then? Well, I don't know if I'd ever say God is choosing not to show up. Uh, okay. I think, yeah, I think God is Maybe always... Maybe that just happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that there are certainly Sundays in which the energy is not there. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are these Sundays in which you preach in which you do feel electric. Yeah. You know, you can feel the intimacy with the congregation. You are right there together. Um, I, I even sense that at fourth, even though the sanctuary is huge, it's very gothic in architecture, the pulpit's way up high and people are far away. But there's still those Sundays where there is just electricity in the air. There are those Sundays where it's a lower energy Sunday for whatever reason. Maybe it's maybe I didn't do the kind of work the week before or I'm not for whatever reason I'm distracted that morning Um, maybe the people coming in are distracted or not as tuned in but you know I've even found on those sun and that those are the Sundays in which thank God there's worship and not just a sermon Mm -hmm. that it's a whole bunch of stuff all around you know of scripture and music and prayer and and God will be worshipped even if the sermon feels paltry. So the sturdiness of the liturgy. The sturdiness can of the carry oh, through. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I still, you know, even on those days where I think it's not maybe what I'd hoped for, people still, you know, I'll still have one or two folks who say that was really important for me to hear. That's when you know that God's at work. But, yeah. And I also think for us to sort of keep ourselves in check that when our attempt at a virtuoso performance doesn't work Mm. and yet worship still works Mm -hmm. there is something about that that is humbling and correcting right that it's not as you were saying earlier a person's encounter or experience of god on a sunday morning is not dependent upon your skill upon your eloquence it's but it's such a exactly and i believe that with everything i've got but i'm also going to be I'm also going to hopefully give my best to Sunday mornings because I think it's so important. You know, that sort of excellence that you try and bring into um, what happens on a Sunday morning. Um, I think it's faithful. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to mess it up from time to time, but um, I don't ever want to get lazy about it. When when you think about the feedback that you get from, from congregations that you've preached to and with, um, how does it feel to be praised as a preacher? And then the, the flip side of that question, which I'll ask in a second, is how does it feel to receive sharp criticism? Um, does that happen to you, like in the handshake line? Are people yeah. free with their reactions? Less critique in the handshake line. Those come in emails and letters later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I'm uncomfortable with both things, I think. Yeah. I mean... I, I'm not going to lie. Praise feels great, right? Yeah, of course. Um, you want to know that 
what you laid as an offering, which frankly, if so, maybe sacramental is not necessarily my how I'd come about preaching. I think maybe more offering. I don't know. Mm. You know, I just get to be the spokesperson for the wrestling with the text um, on behalf of the whole group. So that's an offering, I guess. But I mean, certainly it feels good when that offering is able to be heard and received in a way that's nourishing or appropriately challenging or life giving or whatever, um, which that's always the way I hear that praise. Um, you know, the, if you, the critique part's always really hard for me. I am not thick-skinned, trying to develop some calluses. Um, but I think it's hard for me, but especially regarding the sermon, because it is an offering, and it's authentically, I um, mean, you know, most Sundays, you, you know, you're kind of standing out there naked. Yeah, you've made yourself very vulnerable. Yes. Mm-hmm. I- I have found over the years that that's a hard balance to strike. I think there's a sort of an ideal that we can aspire to, um, which I've heard articulated before as caring with everything you have about the response you're going to get back, the kind of feedback yeah. you're going to get back, but also not caring at all. I know. That's yeah, the ideal, I but that's, that's, that. a, yeah, that's, that's an impossible ideal, I think. <laughs> what do you think your gifts for preaching are? Like, what has God given you that enables you to be a good preacher? Um, I think uh, an honoring of authenticity and vulnerability. I think those are two things that I don't run from. Uh, You know, I think I'm the same person in the pulpit as I am out of the pulpit. I don't have some preaching voice that I put on literally or figuratively. I think the ability to tell a story um, and the ability to connect the stories of the scripture with the stories of our lives. Um, I think a sense of energy and um, joy. If you weren't a preacher, how do you think your spiritual life, your faith would be different? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know what else I would be doing if I weren't doing this. I mean, I could do lots of things, but, you know, there have been moments where I've considered it, but um, not seriously. Um, you know, I, I mean, for me, so much of my spiritual disciplines are, are revolve around preparing for worship. My prayer life, my Bible study life, my reflection life, it's so much of it is centered on sermon creation and bulletin creation. And um, and I know there are all these things, you know, a lot of people say it needs to be separate and you do devotional. I mean, for me, it's all wrapped up together. Um, so sermon preparation is a spiritual yeah, discipline. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... I don't know what it would be like without that. Do you have siblings? I do. She's an attorney. Okay. And how is she, how is she different from you? You guys were both raised as the mm-hmm. daughters of a preacher. Yeah. Um, she, um, I would say she's uh, similar to my mother in that they are both deeply faithful, but they just hold it um, uh, quieter. Mm-hmm. I'm, if you can't tell, a little extroverted, so I have to speak myself into being, you know, um, and so I, that really is the way I come to understand things is through articulation verbally oftentimes. 
And so I, I think that that's, I, you know, I speak myself into faith on a daily basis. What a gift for a preacher to have, right? I mean, it's funny. One of the it's things... It's probably hard to live with. <laughs> Be on staff with. You get, to, you get every thought and I eventually come to my point. I often find myself in conversation saying to people, well, I'm thinking out loud here. Yeah. Um, this goes back to the to you're talking about that sermon in Montreat. So there is an example of you preaching your way into yeah, into a your own faith, of right? Yeah. Yes. So to have that, to be equipped with that, whether that's a tick or a gift or an affliction, <laughs> um, it serves you well as a preacher. And thus far. Yeah. When I listened to your, a sermon that you preached to your, I think it was the last sermon you preached to Black Mountain. Hmm. Um, there was, not surprisingly, uh, a real feeling of close connection yes. between, I mean, I was listening to it on headphones over the computer, and you could feel uh, a closeness between yeah. you and your congregation. Um, how does that happen? That happened with from the fact that I did uh, 80 to 85 memorial services in the four years I was there. Wow. So I had... Um, usually every other week and it was so um formative for me exhausting yeah heavy burden but also so beautiful and i got to bury a lot of presbyterian ministers and for me the gift of being able to minister to someone in there as they were letting go the way that they had been by that bedside for countless numbers of people themselves. I, it was so holy and such a privilege. Um, and you know, and I just, I've, I think one of the questions you had asked me to think about was, do I prefer weddings or funerals preaching? I funerals for sure. Memorial services. Cause even the hard ones, even the really hard ones where it's a baby or it's, cancer too young or I mean it's just there can be such moments of holy honesty whether it's lament and being able to name out loud that this is awful and that God has some explaining to do while also proclaiming that we believe this is not the end of her or his story I think the fact that I was able to do that for so many people in my previous congregation I, first of all, I think it gave me like 10 to 15 years of trust within a couple of years. Um, and, and it was just such a sacred honor. I don't know how long you can do that though, right? I don't know how long you can have a memorial service every other week. Or every, you know, two a week. As the person stepping the person into that breach. Doing that. Yeah. Um, the- it was, t- it was wearing but to be in that place of um i like the way you you named it um there's that point in habakkuk when he's raging at god and i often think like he's right at the border there between pain and cynicism between lament and and nihilism right right and and that's a very sacred yeah border because at some places you're closer than ever yeah um but in another way you're as far away as as you can be mm-hmm, from God. Mm-hmm. So to be in that place repeatedly with the congregation, you, yeah. you built up. Yeah. Um, have you ever 
felt at a wedding, um, for me, when I preach at weddings, that to me is the place where um, hope springs eternal. Right? I always think like, okay, we're going to get a room full of people who are not, who don't hear sermons, who are not accustomed to God talk, and um, I'm going to win them over. <laughs> and I've never had that happen. Instead, more often than not, when I'm preaching at weddings, um, it's this is when people's eyes are glossed over. This is where I feel like I'm performing mm-hmm. rather than it's monologue. It's not a dialogue. What's your experience of wedding preaching like? I don't like to preach at weddings. I try not to. At all? At all. Because of what you just said. But I also think, you know, the scriptures, the vows themselves, the covenant promise that you're making for me, it's there's an enactment and an embodiment of the gospel that's happening in those moments because I there's a lot of God language um, all throughout, of course, because it's a Christian uh, covenant ceremony. Um, it's a worship service. So I would prefer not to preach. You know, I mean, I will have couples ask me to offer a homily and I'll do it. Um, and it's always about, it's always centered on God whose love makes this possible in the first place. Um, but I would prefer not to preach and let the ceremony, the worship service, the liturgy speak for itself. Interesting. Um, plus that means they're like, depending on music, 20, 25 minutes long, which is about people's tolerance. That is about how long folks want their (laughs) weddings to be these days. The... What you're describing is almost a sacramental understanding of marriage, though. (laughs) No, no, no. I just think that there's an embodiment with the the promises being made. I don't think anything mysterious happens. I don't. um, But but that the the vows speak for themselves. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I. Yeah. I think sometimes. I mean, one of the one of the advantages of being in the UCC is we never have to worry about being. Um, heterodox, right? But um, <laughs> but I often think that Protestantism on on the sacraments we threw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of uh, of marriage. I think marriage mm-hmm. is sacramental. I think it's one of the reasons we can make a strong case for same sex marriage mm-hmm. is you're denying people that experience of living. It's fascinating. Yeah. I've never. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm fully in support of same gender marriage, but I had never thought about the argument of that not being of that if it had been sacramental what if that would have changed yeah because we wouldn't bar people from the table right or baptism exactly and i think that in my experience of celebrating weddings despite my moaning about preaching at weddings so maybe the answer is don't do it uh but um that's hard for me um (laughs) but the uh but in my experience of weddings oftentimes i have felt even though I typically go into weddings with a fair amount of, there goes my weekend. Yeah, um, Friday night, Saturday. Yeah. Um, in the moment when the vows are exchanged, when the couple is there, when they're, when you witness two people promising to live sacrificially for one another, it feels like communion. It feels that's like true. a baptism. It, it, you're right. I will say that's right. For a moment, there's, you know, everyone witnessing that kind of has some clarity, you know, sort of this announcement that this is how it is to be. You know what I mean? I mean, right. sort of this. This is yeah. what living like Christ with Christ looks, looks like. like. Right. And it can't happen without, our wedding liturgy at least is insistent upon this, that, that it can't happen without the presence of Christ. How do you feel when you see people, maybe this doesn't happen to you, but when you see people fall asleep? <laughs> It's hard not to be a tad disheartened. Yeah. And yet, 
you know, I'm all for Sabbath rest. So if that's what if that's what they need, I, who knows what they've been through that week. Yeah, yeah. Do do you find that there are faces that you look to who are yes. reliably yeah, courage? Yeah. yeah, they give you courage. Yeah. Yes, I have faces like that. It's, don't you don't you feel grateful for those people? Yes. And that, um, yeah, I, deeply grateful. Yeah. They do just ever, send you energy and vibes and. Love. Do you ever tell them that? Yep. Yeah. I sure so do. you let them know I that do. they're. They can, if they, even if they're visitors and I don't know them, you know, you can tell when people are so glad to be there. Mm-hmm. And there's just a sense of gratitude. Yeah. Um, that I, I try always to make sure I tell them, you know, your face gave me real courage today. Mm. Courage. You, is, do, you have to borrow courage from your people. Courage is a good word. I remember when I was first starting out. I was very reluctant to preach because it felt so audacious. Mm. Um, and I wonder if I've lost that sense of audacity, you know? Mm-hmm. Does it feel to you like when you say courage, that implies that the task is what is dangerous? Um, overwhelming. Overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That for there's sure. risk there. There is risk. Yeah. Absolutely. You. You want to be faithful, mm-hmm. and you don't want to you don't want to abuse this power, because um, there is a sense of pastoral authority. I mean, maybe it's diminished in 2015, but still, there is this sense that they've bestowed upon you a trust. You've been given this um, authority and power over, and um, you have to be very careful. And I try to make that power with. But uh, yeah, you have to be, I, I take it very seriously uh, to not, to be a good steward of all that. So there's risk in terms of the way that you use the power that you have mm-hmm. or misuse it, the potential for misuse. Does it feel risky in the other direction also to be standing there audacious enough to to be proclaiming the word do you know what i mean does that feel like like a bolt like an overly bold thing to be doing ever to to be the one who's going to say yeah i i i have a word from the lord does that feel huh i haven't um i haven't thought about it in those terms i mean i certainly think and that's I, probably because that comes out of my sense of call that this is what I'm to be about. Okay. Yeah. So, and it comes out of a sense of sharing in the wrestling with that I really am just this spokesperson. It's okay. not like God gave me a direct manuscript and I'm presenting it to these plebeians. I mean, that's not it. I mean, yeah. It's, it, I could see then your approach or your understanding of what's happening in the preaching moment is going to be dependent upon a very close relationship yeah, between right. preacher bing, and congregation. Bing, bing. Yes, and that is why that's why my new uh, position here at Fourth Presbyterian Church is a definite growing edge for me. Because in a church of that size, it's, with you just all have of to those, really be intentional about those relationships, about establishing them. Yeah, and they it's don't. Gonna take a long time. They don't happen quickly the way no. that they do in no. a smaller congregation. Not at all. Between one of the things I've found is they don't happen quickly between the preacher 
and the congregation, nor do they happen quickly amongst members of right. the congregation themselves. Yeah, it's real easy to be anonymous Yeah, or to get lost. Um, so yeah, absolutely. In many respects, Fourth Presbyterian functions as the Protestant cathedral for the city of Chicago. It, it has, yeah. Does that cause you to feel as a preacher a different set of responsibilities that you felt when preaching with and to a, a local congregation that was not in that same position? I certainly am aware of it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And it certainly is more um, pressure um, and it could feel incapacitating if I thought too much about it because we do have people who listen to the sermons all over the world. I mean, we have people who come to worship from all over the world. So is that how you wound up with the Ernie Banks funeral? Isn't that a fascinating experience? Yeah. Tell us us about that. Was that because... Was he a member of Fourth Press no, or was no. so so what what went into that? Sure. Well, we have we are known for I think offering hospitality for um, city events like that. And so when the Cubs organization called us, they called us for a couple of reasons. One, they we, I mean sure we have a great location. Right, so it's you can't you're not going to have Ernie Bank service in South Chicago and White Sox territory, <laughs> so it's we're close to Wrigley. But the other thing was they wanted it in a space of worship. They could have rented a hall. Yeah. But I found them to be so respectful, both the family and the Cubs organization, so respectful of the fact that this was a worship space, and that I was the primary leader of that space. Um, they were easy to work with. Mm-hmm. So I, of course. Um, did research and um, but then I quickly realized there are going to be a bunch of people talking about Ernie Banks as the baseball player or as the father or as the friend or as the civil rights pioneer in some ways experiences I did not have of him but I figured out wait a minute I'm the preacher I can talk about Ernie Banks as a child of God and that's my job so once I got over the strange celebrityness of this whole thing. I was actually very calm and just sort of normal during the actual service itself. I mean, I can do a memorial service. I know how to do that. And it sounds similar to the way you would prepare for a service of anyone whom you didn't know that well beforehand, right? right? That's right. So I tried to learn as much as I could from his close um, friends about who he was. But, um, But really, my whole task was to proclaim resurrection and I've that's the first time that a memorial service for me has had in my head this is some evangelism Mm -hmm. because there will be people in who listen to this service or watch it live it was nationally broadcast um, who may or may not have ever heard grace (laughs) Mm. that there's space for everybody in God's love so you did seize that moment. Absolutely. And seize the way in which your pulpit yes. was expanded in that yes. instance. Yes. Yeah. Um, I had worshipers here who who watched it on television and loved that service. Um, and I think that's probably right. It's t- it's not typical. It does happen, but it's not typical no. for um, your tradition to be broadcast nationally on television. No. Yeah. No. Um, so, so then when you think about what the diet of 
TV worship is. Yes. What a vivid contrast. Are you a Cubs fan or were you before? I am now. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I had not really been following baseball all that much. You know, I'm a Texan, so all of my loyalties have always been to Texas teams. Um, But no, I'm a Cubs fan now, and we've been to several games since then. (laughs) I can imagine, like, if, if the preacher in that instance were a lifelong Cubs fan, that could have been a paralyzing experience. Well, okay, so I will say Dr. John Buchanan, who was my predecessor, was I, I asked him if he would come back for that service and be part of the worshiping community because um, he was a, he was a beloved Cubs fan. He is a beloved Cubs fan. He gave me some books that were extremely useful in the way I thought about the sermon and um, thought about baseball almost as an analogy for the spiritual life. We're all trying to get home, right? I mean, it was it was such great stuff. And so it was so fun to be able to visit with John about that service and to learn some some things from him. And then that he was able to be there present for that. Not the kind of exegesis you were planning on in seminary, no, right? Oh, no, that's great. It was great. <laughs> well, Shannon, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, it's been a joy. Greatly appreciated. And um, we're so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.